everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Thrive Theology podcast, where we discuss different theological viewpoints to help you live thoughtfully as a Christian. Today, we have something a little bit different for you. We have an interview with a special guest on the podcast. Her name is Lisa Hensley, and we've recommended some of her Instagram um, highlights and that sort of thing to you before. Um, But today we had the honor of actually getting to sit down with her and have a conversation about women in the church and how to think through these different opinions on women in the church and that sort of thing thoughtfully um, and biblically. So we are having Lisa on the podcast because she has a commitment to scripture first, allowing it to inform her life and her thoughtful measured voice has been really helpful for both Bethany and I in our understanding of women and the role that they play in society and the church. In this conversation, we are not trying to convince you to be either more egalitarian or complementarian necessarily. We don't even really like using those labels because they can be really limiting and they can prevent us from actually understanding each other well in these conversations. Um, Bethany and I both come from a pretty soft complementarian background, so that's kind of the perspective that we're speaking from, and because of that, we really appreciate Lisa's voice and how she doesn't just force her opinions on us, but instead asks us questions and causes us to think about passages that we've maybe only ever thought of in a specific way. So without further ado, here's our interview with Lisa Hensley. Okay, so we're going to get started here. First, we'd like to hear a little bit from Lisa. Can you tell us how you got into this topic and why it's so important to you? Absolutely. Um, I'm so glad to be here with you all today. I have felt drawn to ministry, um, called to ministry even, since I was a teenager. And I grew up in a church setting where there wasn't really much for women to do. Um, You could marry a dude that was going into ministry. And that was really about it. And it just didn't hold a lot of appeal to me. I was like, that's not like I can just go and marry somebody I want to marry and worry about that. So I kind of put it on the back burner, um, except it kept coming back up. And it felt like every few years, this topic kept coming back up. And finally, it got to the point where I was like, I've really got to figure out what, what the story is about women. And I started reading um, some popular complementarian scholars. And I started noticing like some real holes, some real things that I saw as problems that weren't, oh, here is, here is what we think this Bible verse says. It was, and because of this Bible verse, we also think this, 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 and this. And I was like, I am not really sure how this is, how this whole thing is working out. So when I started this, it was really to fill in those gaps. I thought I'm going to go And I'm going to look at this theology. I didn't even know it was called complementarianism at this point. Like this is how how little that I understood about what was happening uh, around this topic. And I really thought that I was going to go fill in some holes and I was going to walk away with my questions answered. Oh, well, here's why women can't do this. Here's why, you know, fill in the blank with whatever question that I had. And then the deeper I dug, I was like, "Um, maybe all of this is not And that was a very unsettling place to be. And I was probably there for, I mean, two or three years, because when you have something that you've heard your entire life and you start to dig into it and you're like, some parts or all of this is not true. It's really unsettling. You can't just, you know, tackle that head on 
all the time. You have to, you know, you have to pick it up and take breaks. At least I had to. And then be like, okay, I'm not thinking about this right now and kind of go on about life and then come back to it. So it was, it was a really long process for me to kind of work through this. Emily and I are in a similar place. And so we're going to use this episode um, and the next one to talk through some of these issues. And of course, we're not going to solve it all in these two episodes, but we'd like to open the conversation. So firstly, we'd like to talk about 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, which say, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So Paul has this little one-liner about Adam being created first and then Eve. And we tend to take this phrase and use it as a lens through which to view all other passages about men and women. Why do you think this is and why is it a problem? I think it is because it's a really easy thing to do, right? So if we want, if that's the way we're going to treat the Bible, then we can pull a phrase out of anywhere, out of context. You know, we've removed one single phrase from something that is an entire letter. We don't do this with any type of literature, any type. And I know people get offended when we call the Bible literature sometimes, but it is literature. I'm not saying it's not true. We would never treat any other written communication that way. It's what I'm trying to communicate there. And then you can just stick it on anything. You're like, but Adam was made first. And the problem is that's not, it's not a respectful way to treat the Bible because we know that verses have context. And even starting reading this passage at verse 13, I would say when I talked through first Timothy two on Instagram one time, and I told everybody, I was like, we're going to do this in a few days. And I want you to go read the entire book of first Timothy before we do this. I want you to note like major things. I want you to note Paul's transitions as he's working through all the different things that he's talking about. And then we started talking up at verse eight because there is a transitional word there. You know, it starts with therefore. And you have to have a consistent method of interpretation through that entire passage. That's the way we want to treat all of scripture, not just this section. Um, But when we come back to the Adam was formed first and then Eve, I think one of the things that we should always discuss with 1 Timothy 2 is that scholars debate this passage. They're like, this is the most unclear passage in the entire New Testament. Um, So we should be upfront with that. No one actually knows what Paul's point was with this. Most scholars that are being honest about their work are going to say there's a lot of things that we don't, we don't know what Paul is doing here. Um, And I think if we won't admit that, we're trying really hard to oversell whatever point we're trying to make. Um, And then so Adam was formed first than Eve. We have to ask, why, why is Paul saying this? Right? What, what is his point in saying Adam was formed first and then Eve? Is he saying Adam was formed first and then Eve, and this is why we're going to say women can't teach men? Are we saying Adam was formed first and then Eve, so women are, men are first in everything and women are second? Because that's a real hard sell with just what we know about God, right? Not being a respecter of persons. And just what we know about the character of God, that's a really hard sell. And one of the things that really helped me was when I realized that this this creation account, of course, is in Genesis, right? And if you read through the entire book of Genesis, what you see in almost every story is God overturning this notion of picking the first, 
So you're going to go through Cain and Abel. Abel was the second born. You're going to go to Isaac and Ishmael, right? Isaac wasn't Abraham's firstborn. Um, we're going to go down through every single story. Um, that's not what God does. That's not how he operates. And that's actually um, primogenitor is what that's called. Um, you know, that privileging of the firstborn. It's a prime marker of patriarchy. And it's just very interesting to me that even though the culture surrounding the Old Testament would have practiced that, that God intentionally does the opposite. And we're going to go to that same book where the theme is the opposite of that. And we're like, mm, no, Adam was first. So he's first in everything. Like that's a hard sell in context that we can take the Bible and make that mean that. So let's talk about headship now, because I think these two concepts are kind of related. Um, so on Instagram, you have talked about the concept of how of headship and how that is can get blown way out of proportion in the church. And even how we misinterpret Bible passages like this one that seem to kind of put the man over the woman. So can you talk about how you've seen this concept misinterpreted and even abused in the church? And is, can we even make a case for headship um, in the Bible? How can we talk about headship in a way that is actually honoring to both men and women? Like, so just as an example, um, we were talking before the podcast, but like my husband is not like a traditional leader. He's not one of these like guys who's comfortable in front of a lot of people or whatever. Um, so the, the concept of headship would actually put a ton of pressure on him as a man and ask him to do things that are just not part of who he is. Um, and then it would also be damaging to some women who maybe have those leadership qualities naturally and are being told that they cannot use them. And in fact, by using them, they're actually damaging the church. So yeah, if you could kind of talk a little bit about headship and how you've seen that misused and misinterpreted, um, that would be great. This is a hard topic because this word's kind of just ingrained in our vocabulary, right? We throw out this word and I actually think it's simpler to go back to those passages and not use the word. So Ephesians 5 is normally the first place we go to, right? I'm like, okay, so let's go to Ephesians 5 and talk about what it says and only use the language that's used in scripture, which means the husband is the head of his wife, not the family, which is usually how when I hear someone talk about headship in the way of, you know, the husband's the head, it's always of the family, and that's not what it says. It says the husband is the head of the wife. And then if we keep reading, what we normally leave out is that the wife is also discussed. Like the wife is the body, right? He's supposed to love his wife as his body. And so we have a conversation where we're leaving half of it out. We don't tell half the story. And then we exaggerate or twist or just shift the focus on the other part. And I did an experiment one time and I went to the internet and gathered a bunch of people's definitions of headship. Um, and I tried to pick, I mean, not people who are way out there who just say wild and crazy stuff, leaders in their church circles, well-known theologians and scholars. And it's on the blog if anyone actually wants to go find it. But I made a list of the different ways that people defined headship. I'm like, what are you saying that this is? And none of them were the same thing. 
And it just really struck me that we've gone to a passage of scripture and we've picked a word that's not actually there. And then we're all making up our own definition for it. And I thought this, this cannot work out well. And if you go and read that passage in Ephesians 5, the whole point of the husband being the head of his wife, what he is told to do is to love his wife. He's to nourish and cherish his wife. Those are the words that are used. And they were in no one's definition of headship. Love was not the way anyone was defining it. And I thought, this is so interesting to me that we are choosing to do this and nobody's nobody's seeming to say, um, why? Why are we doing that? Next question from me, um, and this has to do with somewhat of that issue. I recently have discovered that there's different translations of certain words that either lean one way or the other. Um, So how can we be more aware of translation issues with these certain passages? I'm thinking about how the ESV often translates in male terms or female terms um, to support complementarian beliefs, and that it was actually kind of in response to the NIV um, doing more gender gender neutral. This is where I always say, read a variety of translations because you're going to start to pick up on that. You're going to say, oh, wait a minute. This is very different from what this other version says. Why is that? And, you know, I want to be fair. Different translation teams are trying to do different things, right? Some are giving us a word for word. At least they're saying that's their aim. Others are trying to group thoughts together. I think it's fair to say, what was the intent of this translation? I think it's really fair to go and look at, okay, who funded the translation, right? Like who's putting the backing behind this? Um, Ask things like, who sat on the translation team? Was it a bunch of dudes? Let's let's be honest that this plays into how we're going to translate things. What was the purpose? Like the ESV, they had a very specific goal in mind when they set out to translate some of the things that they did. Um, Do I think that's biased and not what we should bring to the table? Yeah. I mean, I do. Um, We don't really, we're, we're not supposed to shape the Bible to fit our viewpoint. Um, I do think the ESV has some great points as a translation. It's not my favorite because of that. I feel like when I hand it to somebody, I have to give a disclaimer of, it's going to say brothers a whole lot, and we're actually meaning brothers and sisters. Like, women are included in the Bible. And it's really easy to read some of those translations and be like, and where am I? What happened to me? And I think that we just have to pay attention to our translations and why they were made, and who's paying for them, and then read them really widely. I said before a couple of times, um, if you get the Version Bible app, this is this really cool function where you can um, underline a passage and then compare that specific verse or passage in as many different translations as you want. And I'll even do this in church sometimes if I want to check something out. It's super handy and helpful and free. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's a great thing to do. I really like if you're studying the Bible in a group, if you have different translations in the group, I think that's way more helpful. Maybe not if you all read aloud at the same time, (laughs) but for just study and what words are here, I think it's really fascinating to do. 
It's interesting that you mentioned the ESV because my dad gave me an ESV like back when it came out. My dad's into Bible translations. Mm-hmm. Um, but when the ESV came out, he bought some for us kids and we weren't old enough to read them yet because I think it was like 2001. Um, but my first, like my own first Bible brand new was an ESV. And I've just always stuck with the ESV ever since, not really knowing about these biases. And then just recently, I've kind of been... I guess, thinking more about it, looking into it. And the ESV does always have footnotes where it says here, brothers and sisters, right? But it's a footnote, which I'm kind of like, a lot of people don't think to read those and they'll say it like once for the whole passage, right? So it'll be like here and also see these other verses. And then I went to the front of my ESV and actually like just read their like policy on gender pronouns. And it was, I thought it was actually pretty fair. Like they kind of And this is actually something we do in a lot of languages. It's not something we do in English, but it is something like I studied Spanish and French in high school. Um, One of the things is that like, if you have a room full of guys and you want to call them friends, you're going to say amigos, like, and that's like a gendered male friend. If you have a group of girls, you're going to say amigas, you're going to make that word feminine. If you have a room full of girls and you add one guy to the room, you default to saying amigos, the male. And so this is actually really common in in other languages. And so it's actually not like, I don't view it as like, you know, hateful that they're not saying brothers and sisters. I think in English, it causes issues because that's not how we think in English cultures. So what I started doing was every time there's a footnote in my Bible that says here, brothers is referring to brothers and sisters. I highlighted a specific color. And I know in my Bible now I've been going through and like gender neutralizing stuff in my ESV just to help me know when. And I'm careful to not do that if it's if I'm like this passage might actually be talking about men. Like I don't just like, you know, everything that's male is also female. I'm not trying to do that. But wherever my Bible acknowledges, hey, women are included here. I've been highlighting green. So that I know when I'm reading, oh, this is for everybody. It's not just men. Um, which, yeah, that, that's been like helpful. It's still something I'm kind of like learning more about and waiting my way through. But um, I think it's, it's helping me to be mindful of that as I'm studying for sure. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say this is not like an unknown literary or speech pattern, right? That we would do this. It does make me question, but what are you trying to communicate to the reader? Mm -hmm. Um, Why are you not wanting them to just see that this group is men and women? Right. Um, That's one of my really big questions there. I also remember reading the results of the survey several years ago, and it was an exceptionally high percentage of people who actually thought when it said brothers that it only meant men. Mm. And I was like, we are not doing a good job of teaching even just what you explained to us about the Spanish language and how we would do that. We haven't taught that to our average Bible reader, the average person sitting in our church hearing this read out loud, but you know they're not looking at the footnotes, right? They're hearing you say brothers. And somehow we're actually thinking that it doesn't include women in these parts. Um, I think it's worth questioning, what do we gain from that? Why would that be the thing that we chose to do, right? And I still use the ESV sometimes. I'm really not trying to be like, the ESV is terrible. That is not what I mean at all. Mm-hmm. I think you should just be aware of the, the limits of the translation that you're using, whatever it is. 
Yeah, there are always limits to any translation, for sure. Absolutely. It is a translation. <laughs> yeah. I think that sometimes people react negatively, like when we're saying, hey, we need to be aware that women are in the Bible more than we think they are sometimes. I think sometimes people react negatively against that and they say, well, you just want more control. Like as women, which I mean, if we're even arguing about who has power and control, that's a whole other, like we need to deal with that. Um, But maybe we'll talk about that later. Um, But I think that sometimes we can say, you know, well, you women, like you just want to have leadership. You just want to have influence over men. And it's like, well, actually like that, maybe that's a correction that needs to happen. I don't know. But it also makes women more accountable. It also calls women to a higher level of accountability. If these commands that are given to men are also being given to women. Like if we are telling men to, to not be lazy and to work hard and to work with your hands and contribute to the needs of the believers. That applies to women too. That doesn't allow women to just sit around and not do anything, you know? And, and so I think like we need to be aware that this goes both ways and that both men and women are called to live a certain way in the kingdom of God. Um, and that we're not just trying to give women more control or whatever, however we want to phrase that. When I started studying just a lot of things that related to what we're saying about gender and what we're saying about women, um, I made a list of the verses that talked about how each one of us are going to stand before God and answer for our life. And I couldn't find not one verse, regardless of how much I might have been told this, that said that my husband was going to stand in front of God and answer anything about me. I couldn't find it anywhere. And I actually went... And I asked one of the pastors at our church, I was like, is this anywhere? I said, because I can't find it. I said, what I'm finding instead is this list of all these other verses that say, I am going to stand in front of God and answer for what I've done with my life. And he looked at me and he was like, it looks like you've uh, put some work into this. And I was like, yeah. I was, and he said, I don't have anything. And I thought, why are we allowing this to even if we're not actively teaching it, we know it's being taught that this is a thing that we think because if we go back to our concept about headship, it's like, well, men have to be the leader because they're the ones that are responsible again for the family, right? And they're responsible for the family because they're the leader. It like goes in this big circle. And I just can't find anywhere where my husband is going to be responsible to God for me, for his behavior towards me. Of course, we know that we're very responsible for how we treat the people around us. That love for our neighbor is very deeply tied to our own love for God. And surely that includes our spouse, right? (laughs) Um, That was a real game changer for me. When I found place after place in scripture that told me that same thing that you were talking about, Emily, that I am going to stand in front of God and I'm going to give an account for my life. And I think maybe we don't take that seriously enough. Because in that case, it takes women off the hook. Like your husband's responsible for you. So you can go do whatever you want because he stands there for it, not you. Like, no, you're responsible for yourself. That's, I don't know, it's clear to me because in our situation, Emily's married. I'm not. So I don't know. I don't, I'm responsible for myself the whole time. This whole time I have been, and I will be for my whole life. Cause it's me who makes my choices and decisions.
we're going to move on a little bit here to some church leadership. So some complementarians claim that their beliefs about men and women are based in the doctrine of the Trinity, which would be the eternal subordination of the son or ESS. If you want to get um, that way acronym, um, could you explain how this works and why it's a problem or not a problem? And I'll be honest, this is the concept of it being a problem is a little bit new to me. So this is kind of a more nerdy topic, right? Um, And also, I want to be really clear that there are lots of complementarians who come out strongly against ESS. That is not how they are grounding their beliefs about men and women. Um, So I do want to be really clear about that. This is, it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, You should go and look at whoever you're listening to and actually find out if they believe this and not just accuse them of it. But there's also another passage that talks about someone being the head. I'm trying to avoid using the word headship, but it's the other headship passage Um, there in first Corinthians. And it talks about, uh, I'm just going to go, I'm just going to go read it instead of attempting to summarize it. It says it's first Corinthians 11, three, and I'm reading in the CSB. It says, but I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of the woman and God is the head of Christ. So then they do this parallel where there's God and Jesus, Christ and man, and then man and woman. Now, we can immediately see that there are really large disconnects between those three lines. I love how I'm doing this and everyone listening to this podcast can't see me holding my hands up here um, because we believe that the Trinity is, you know, equal in power and authority and glory that they share the same, they share the same personhood. Um, I'm trying not to say anything heretical because it's, it can, it's really easy to do when you talk about the Trinity. Right. So we wouldn't say unless we believe in ESS, that the son is eternally subordinate to the father. Did he submit his will on earth? Yes, but they have the same will. So we run into all kinds of issues with our Trinitarian beliefs if we act like God and Jesus have two different wills and Jesus has to constantly and for all eternity submit his will to the father. That is not something that is orthodox Christian belief. But to use that passage to set men over women, you have, to, you have to logically do that. And that's the issue that you run into if you try to ground your beliefs about men and women in the Trinity. I guess that's what's ha- what happens when we take our agendas and then try to back them up with scripture. <laughs> it's almost like we shouldn't do that. Yeah, maybe not a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> so... Shifting gears just a little bit here, um, I was so I personally was raised in an environment where my parents really actually followed traditional gender roles. I think mostly out of personality. Mm-hmm. Like my dad is, he um, came to faith as a young adult. He's very, he's a deep thinker. He, you know, has a ridiculous amount of books um, and Bible translations. As I mentioned, he loves um, studying things and all that kind of thing. Um, my parents decided to homeschool us kids through elementary school. So then my mom ended up being at home with us. My dad was working. So, and then I, I'm the oldest with two younger brothers and both of my brothers are especially the older of the two. They're, they're both like men's men. And that's, that's just who we all are. And I always was more because I'm the oldest, I was like the second mother and, you know, had to be told constantly that I'm not my brother's mother. Um, 
So in our family, we just kind of like naturally fell into these really like gendered roles. You know, when I moved out of the house, I had never cut the lawn, which is still like a joke, a family joke. Um, I, I've still never cut the grass in my life. And uh, good thing I married a man who's who can. And my brothers moved out of the house and had never cleaned the bathroom. So like we just that's just how our home worked. Um, I don't know that that was all super intentional. Like I think some of that just naturally happened. But in that environment, and I think it had to do with some different personalities in our families as well. It wasn't something that was like explicitly taught, but it was kind of implicitly taught that like emotions were somewhat of a negative thing. And then that kind of combined with mostly being in more complementarian churches my whole growing up years, it was like women can't lead because they're emotional. And if you're emotional, the chances of you being able to like make good decisions are lesser. And like, Nobody ever said that to me, right? Like nobody sat me down and was like, Emily, you can't lead because sometimes you cry. Like nobody said that. Nobody's going to say that. That'd be really rude. But there were sometimes just like little situations that happened throughout my life where it was kind of like women just can't lead as well as men because, and it's not, it's not, you know, it's not because you did anything wrong. It's just like, that's just the way it is. You know, how do we respond to this in a healthy godly way? How do we respond to the belief that women aren't fit for leadership because they're more emotional or kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, because they could be more easily deceived? Like how do we in the church talk about this where, you know what, emotion can actually be a good thing. And how do, how do we re- reframe that in our minds? We realize that a lot of that's cultural, right? Because no one actually has to say it out loud. It's nowhere stated in scripture that women are more emotional than men. It's always very interesting to me that anger never counts as an emotion when we have these conversations, right? Only men get to be angry, but anger is not an emotion, and it certainly doesn't disqualify men from leadership. And I think a lot of it is just forcing, and I don't mean like violent force. I mean bringing it up where people have to look at the inconsistencies to their arguments. Because if we've heard them our whole life and everybody around around us thinks these same things, we never, we never look at our own inconsistencies. We never look at the things that we're saying that's like, maybe these aren't accurate. Or maybe, even like you were talking about your own family, that this comes really naturally to us to do things that way because of our personality. But we can't take, we can't make a stamp out of the personality of the people in our family and then make everybody else line up with that, which is what I think happens a lot, Right. As for the being easily deceived part, um, that's also in that 1 Timothy 2 passage, right? It says for, because Eve was deceived and Adam wasn't. And I have a couple of things to say to that. One, do we actually think it was better that Adam sinned deliberately? Like knew what he was doing was wrong and did it. We think that's better than, oh, I actually didn't realize this was wrong and I did it. Because I've got some real questions if we're going to be confronted with that question where like, yes, it's way worse that you'd be tricked into doing wrong. We should sit with that for a while. Secondly, that has nothing to do with every other woman or every other man. We don't go around teaching that men are more likely to deliberately walk, walk around sinning. So that makes me ask, why are we you know, perpetuating this notion because there are still some people that teach that. 
I also noticed when I started studying this that there's another passage, and I think it's in 2 Corinthians, I want to, yes, 2 Corinthians 11, 3, where Paul tells the entire church not to be deceived like Eve was. He didn't think that this was a thing that was just restricted to women. It's also a huge theme throughout the entire New Testament. Don't be deceived. Don't deceive yourself. Don't let this other group of people deceive you. It was a little shocking to me. One of the last times that I read through the New Testament, just how often the writers of the New Testament are warning people not to be deceived. I think that's just a natural weakness of our human nature is our how easy it is to deceive us and how much a lot of times we're complicit in that, right? Like we want to be deceived. We're even actively deceiving ourselves about things. This is just something that we should all be acknowledging about our humanity. It's why we need accountability. It's why we have to keep coming back to the truth. And we're damaging men and women. If we tell a story that, well, women are way more likely to be deceived um, because that makes women question what God is telling them and what they're being taught and even their own ability to understand God. And then men aren't paying attention to something that they should be paying attention to. Yeah. I've heard really heartbreaking stories where women are like, there was this issue in our family and I like mentioned it to my husband and he, and these are like people who love the Lord. Like these are not men who are terrible people. Like there are men who look at their wives and they say, I can't trust anything you say because Satan will use you to deceive me. Mm-hmm. And I, I cannot even imagine how damaging that is for women, but also men. Like my husband and I, like we are partners in the Lord. And there are times where he's had to sit me down and be like, you need to calm down about this because <laughs> I'm the one who gets riled up about stuff in our marriage. And there are times where I go to him and I'm like, honey, you're wrong about this. Like that goes both ways. And I can't even imagine the pressure, how lonely men would feel if they feel like they have to lead their families. And not only that, but that their wife might actually be working against them because Satan is used. Like I, that's so heartbreaking. And I think that there are probably going to be people, well, there will be people in the church who have taught that, who will be called to account for that someday. Yes, absolutely. We're damaging marriages. We're discounting the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of women. We're putting burdens on men that God never intended for them to carry. And I I do think that we give an account for the things that we teach and the things that we practice. And that's why I think it matters that we ask hard questions, um, that we look at the inconsistencies of the stories that we tell and say, okay, is this actually a reflective of what God does and who he is and what he's teaching us to do and be? We're going to hit pause on the interview just there um, because we're going to make this into two episodes. We are going to, of course, link how to find Lisa and her other resources in her blog so you can find out more about her if you just can't wait until next episode. Um, And that's fine. And we are going to talk to you next week with the second half. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning into the Thrive Theology Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a rating or review. For show notes, resources, blog posts, and a complete archive of episodes, visit us at thrivetheology.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at Thrive Theology. We'll chat with you next time.